last week as we continued this running conversation that we've been having for some months now at this point about the gospel and specifically about what it looks like or what it means to live as the renewing agent of God, or to put it differently, maybe a little bit more comprehensibly, as somebody who learns how to get up every single day and as a follower of Jesus says something incredibly unnatural, says, good morning, Lord, that's not the unnatural part. Here's the rest. By the power of your spirit, here's what I'm going to endeavor to do today. I'm going to endeavor to offer myself to you today more authentically than I did yesterday. And it's not going to be perfect. And I understand that it's not going to be perfect. And when I get to the end of the day, there are going to be things that I've done and things that I've said and things that I've taken back from you that I'm going to have to repent of. But I'm praying that by your spirit and community with my brothers and sisters today, I can deny my every impulse to live this day entirely for me, which is my nature. It's my character. It's who I am as a human being. We all do it. So that instead, I can offer myself to you. I can live this day for you. I can be your agent of renewal today in my family, in my office, in my school, in this city, in the world, and wherever else you providentially place me, or maybe to put it a little differently in that respect, God, how do you want to use me today to be, albeit imperfectly, the presence of Jesus in my family, in my office, in my school, in this city, and in the world? How do you want to use me to bring the attitude of Jesus, to bring the wisdom of Jesus, to bring the selflessness of Jesus, to bring the service of Jesus, to bring the mercy of Jesus, to bring the love of Jesus, to bring the life of Jesus, to bring the gospel of Jesus everywhere I go? How do you want to use me to do that? So that's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And last week, as we continued that conversation, what we looked at was the role of our obedience to God's law as a part of that endeavor. And what we walked away, hopefully at least, understanding bottom line is that, look, when it comes to living as the renewing agents of God, okay, our obedience to the law of God is really, really important. And it's really, really important for a very simple reason, because the law of God comes out of the heart of God. It comes out of the nature of God. It comes out of the character of God. And therefore, it's an expression of His nature and character. So then, when we, in community with each other, by the power of the Spirit, deny our impulses, which is to live for us, and instead make whatever sacrifices are necessary to obey the law of God, the nature and character of our invisible God, is then made visible into whom? Well, to everybody who's watching in our family, in our office, in our school, in our city, and in the world. And so we began that conversation last week, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And Jesus is now going to talk to us about another law. I'm going to call it the law of love. And here's what the law of love requires, among other things. It requires us to love even our enemies. Why? Because that comes naturally to us. That's the native impulse of my heart. Is that it? No. The native impulse of our hearts is to fight our enemies. It's to go after our enemies. It's to degrade our enemies. It's to take it out. It's to hate our enemies. It's a strong word. It's an honest word. Now, we're to love our enemies because here's what happens. When we love our enemies, guess what? My nature, your nature, not seen. My character, your character, not seen. Nature and character of every other person on the globe, not seen. Nature and character of our God who in love, follow this now, did absolutely everything necessary through Jesus Christ, life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection to do what? to come to me and to come to you while we were living, unknowingly perhaps, unwittingly perhaps, unintentionally perhaps, but as the enemy of God. 
every day getting up and taking our lives and spending them on ourselves so that we can get up the next day and take our lives and spend them on ourselves. Lives that he created to be spent and used on him and to find greatest joy and satisfaction as an aside in the doing of that. Doing what we were made to do. The Bible says that while you were yet sinners, while you were at enmity, it talks about, oh, strong language. What does that mean? It means that while I was an enemy of God, nevertheless, what did he do? He did everything that needed to be done in Christ. Not just to make me his friend, but to make me a part of his family. So when we then obey God's law to love even our enemies, okay, the nature and character of our invisible God who did that for us, is made visible to everybody in our lives who's watching, and maybe most especially to our enemies, who, by the way, by the power of that love, can, in fact, become a part of God's family, and thus a part of our family, since that's the family that we belong to through faith in Jesus. So with all that in mind, we pick up our study today in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38, where Jesus begins by giving us examples of how in love we can respond to people who, by the way they've treated us, have proven themselves to be our enemies. When he says this, he says, you have heard that it was said, and here we go, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what is Jesus doing? He's doing the same thing that he did last week. He's taking us into the Old Testament laws. He's plucking one or two or three of them out. This one, just one. And he said, all right, let's talk about this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is, by the way, a just law, is it not? You take my eye, I take yours, we're square. You take one of my teeth, I take one of your teeth, we're even. But this law was not put into place to be sure that I got an eye or a tooth. It was put into place to be sure that if you take my eye, I don't retaliate and take your whole head. That's the point. Oh, you took a tooth? I'm going to take nine or ten or many as I can. It's meant to restrain vengeance. So I can't retaliate that way. And more than that, just on a practical level, I can't do this directly. You know, the Bible makes it clear that God has ordained governments. He has given us the state, complete with the police department and the court systems and all of these other mechanisms by which vengeance can be had, and they are ordained as His instruments of justice in this world. And so let me say what I know that you're now thinking so we can just dispose of it. What if you don't get justice that way? Because that does happen, doesn't it? Then what do you do? What are you free as a Christian to do? As one who uniquely understands that since there is a God who is altogether holy and since there is a God who is altogether just, there is not an offense ever done by any person in the history of humanity that God in His justice will not address in this life or in the next. He must or He's not just. He has to or He's not holy. Which means that we'll all of us have to deal with what we've done and pay that penalty ourselves, or we can claim the payment made by Jesus on our behalf. But in either case, payment will be made. It's necessary. Well, what does that allow me to do? Somebody's offended me. They've proven that they're my enemy. They've taken my eye or my tooth or all kinds of other things that we'll talk about here in a second. What does that free me to do? It frees me to package up my vengeance and put it in a great big box, if I'm honest. And I say, all right, so like, here's the deal. Here, Lord, you can take this. And I can trust you with it. What does our God say? He says, you know what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And when we feel like we've got to go repay, what are we saying about him? He said, no, no, no. Give that to me. It's as good as done. And now here's what you're free to do. 
you're free to respond in a way that is contrary to your every impulse, that violates human nature, and that as a result, when you do, is shocking to people in a way that draws attention to whose nature and character, because it isn't mine, but to the nature and character of God, to the kind of love that pays the price necessary to make enemies family. It's a remarkable, amazing, incredible thing. And so again, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to which he adds, but I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. That doesn't mean don't call the police if you see somebody committing a crime. It doesn't mean don't ever go to court. It doesn't mean don't stand up for the oppressed. He's dialing in on vengeance, and he's saying, listen, don't feel like you've got to be the one to avenge yourself all the time. He continues, and he says, but if instead, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Okay, so here's the deal. Most people are right-handed. I know that not everybody is right-handed. My mother is not right-handed. I'm not against left-handed people. Don't get that wrong, okay? Most people are right-handed, and so they slap you with their right hand, but if they're going to slap you with their right hand and hit you on the right cheek, how are they slapping you? It's a backhanded slap. Get the idea? That meant something in this culture, This is an honor and shame-based culture. Everything in this culture, the priority is given to maintaining face, to not being humiliated, to upholding one's dignity, to if you are insulted, you must culturally avenge yourself to reestablish your honor. And when you are backhanded in the face, particularly when it happens publicly, good grief, that was a huge insult. It was humiliating. But what is Jesus teaching about vengeance? about enemies, about what you're free in Christ to do. Indeed, if you want to make God known what you need to do, he says, listen, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, here's what you're free to do. Turn to him the other also. Why? Because your primary concern as a follower of Jesus, as an ambassador of Jesus, as a renewing agent of God is not the reestablishment of your honor. It's not propping your dignity back up. It's not satisfying your own anger, which, by the way, just gets more inflamed, not less, when you pursue vengeance, doesn't it? If you feed it, it, the fire burns brighter. Your primary concern, because God has all of that for you, is the soul, even of the one who is your enemy, but who might become not just your friend, but your family through your shocking, stunning, salt and light kind of manifestation of God's otherworldly love. Love that converts, love that transforms, love that makes enemies friends. And incidentally, and I think we need to take this to heart, was not Jesus beaten, mercilessly, humiliated, spit upon, etc. for you? So it's not like he's ordaining things for us that he was not ordained himself to do and in spades. Oh, you know what? This is something that you guys need to do, but I'm God. I'm distanced from this. No, 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 no. I've done this for you. That's how I expressed that love for you. It's part of the price I paid to win you when you were my enemy is the idea. So he continues. And he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, you're like, okay, so what is a tunic? Because that means something too. It was this kind of close-fitting, tight-fitting undergarment that these people would wear under their cloak, which was the outer garment. And the tunic was thought to be such an inalienable possession of every person who had a tunic that if, for example, you made a loan to somebody and they gave you their tunic, you know, as collateral for the loan, it was just understood culturally that at the end of the day, you had to give them their tunic back because they could not be without their tunic. You get the idea? 
It's the closest of personal possessions. So this too would be insulting. He's like, listen, if somebody comes after you and they are so after you that they're suing you even for your tunic. Everybody's like, oh. He says, hey, you know what? Let them have your cloak as well, which would leave you naked, incidentally. So do that somewhere else, okay? But why? Because your primary concern is not your tunic. It's not even your most personal of possessions. You can entrust those things with the Lord. What is your concern? You've got a heavenly mind. You're thinking eternally. You're manifesting the love of God, the same love He manifested for you and at a far greater price. Your concern is for the soul of the one who's offended you, who would even take your tunic. Can you believe such a thing? That's insane. That's crazy. And yet, wait a minute. Did not Jesus hang naked on the cross? hanging there while the guys who nailed him to it are gambling for his tunic and for his cloak. Why did he do that? He did that to claim you. He continues, he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, which is almost certainly a reference to the practice of the Roman soldiers in those days who by law could commandeer civilians. So, you know, you're heading home for dinner. You're five minutes late. If you're me, you're in a panic because you're starving, right? Or you're going to a meeting, and it's a big meeting. It's important to your business. You've been waiting for a month to have this meeting. You've got a big presentation. You've got your PowerPoint. You're ready to go. And you run across a Roman soldier who's carrying something. He could stop you dead in the street and say, you know, I don't really care about your meeting or your schedule. Put this on your back. We're going that direction for a mile. Then I'm going to commandeer the next guy. That would be infuriating and humiliating. Jesus says, all right, well, so here's the deal. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles because your concern is not the meeting. Your concern is not your freedom. Your concern is your enemy. Who, by the way, through your display of otherworldly love, that's what it is. It's not our instincts. It's not our character very well may be one into the family of God, which means your family and Jesus, incidentally, carried his cross, did he not? And then his hands and feet were nailed to the cross, were they not? My goodness, you want to talk about a loss of freedom. I can't even move except up and down on the cross so I can gasp to take my next breath. Why did he do that? To win enemies and to make them family. And so he continues, and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Now, where does that come from? It's the second greatest commandment. So then what is the first? Yes, it's a love commandment too. And the second issues out of the first. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And now comes the second commandment and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting that. And he says to this first century audience, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but he doesn't stop there. What else had they heard said? And hate your enemy. Now, where did that come from? Because it's definitely not in the Bible. It came from the native impulses that all of us have to take God's law and make it as skinny as we can, as we talked about last week. I want to narrow this thing down as much as I can to make it as easy and as comfortable for me as it can possibly be to fulfill 
to obey. And so they just kind of deduced, okay, well, so here's the deal. If, if God only commands us to love our neighbors, therefore then he leaves us free to hate our enemies. And it literally became kind of a mantra in those days. So when they began to study the Qumran uh, scrolls, for example, they found this, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Jesus is speaking to an issue in their day, but our day too. Why? Because that's our instinct. Look, we all love the people who look like us and walk like us and talk like us and vote like us and live like us and agree with us on pretty much all of the moral and social issues of our day. That's easy. And it's easy to hate our enemies too. That doesn't feel very exacting. It doesn't feel very difficult. It doesn't, as he's going to point out here in a second, make me any different. It doesn't shine like light. It doesn't preserve like salt. It doesn't reveal anyone's nature or character other than everyone's nature and character, except for that of God. And so he comes to us and he says, look, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But why, Jesus, to what end, to one purpose? What happens when I do that? So that you may be sons, he says, of who? Of your Father who is in heaven. And here's the deal with fathers and sons. They look alike. They just do. You can see the image, the likeness of the Father in the Son. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you love your enemies, you're going to stop looking like you and everybody else. But, but here's who you're going to start looking like. The, the likeness that is going to be seen is the likeness of your Father in heaven who does what? Well, here's just one example. He, Jesus continues, makes his son to rise on who? On the evil and on the good. And he sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you only love those who love you, that doesn't make you any different. There's no reward in that. He says, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the most reprehensible people in their culture, do that? And if you greet only your brothers who walk like you and live like you and talk like you and vote like you, etc., 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 the easy ones, if you greet only them, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles. He's saying, don't even those people who don't know God, your heavenly Father, do that. And so then he concludes and he says, "There, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you say, well, you know what, but I'm not perfect and I'm not perfect either. Hopefully you've figured that out by now. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that in love for us, while we were yet his enemies, God sent his son to live a perfect life and then to suffer and die and to rise again from the dead to defeat and to pay the penalty for all of our imperfections. And here's what happens in us when that kind of love actually and authentically lays hold of us. It changes our hearts And it makes us want to reflect the likeness and the image of that God by doing what? Obeying His commands, and in this case, His law of love, which includes even our enemies. Because here's what that law is not. It's not love your neighbor and hate your enemies. It's love even your enemies, and here's why. Because they too are your neighbors. And I can't think of a better way of illustrating that reality And the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 10. How does that story start? Do you remember? He's dialoguing with an expert on the law of God. And he's speaking to a Jewish crowd. 
And the guy says, all right, so the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right answer, Jesus says, and your neighbor is yourself. That's right. So this guy's thinking to himself, okay, so I have to love my neighbor. Now, what's my impulse? I want to make my neighbor people that look like me and walk like me and talk like me and think like me and vote like me and agree with me on pretty much every social and moral issue of my day because that's easy. I do that anyway. And so then, in an attempt to do that, what does he ask? He says to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Is it that group? Or does it include other people? And Jesus says, that is an excellent question. So let me tell you a story. He says, a man, and it's certain that this is a Jewish man, otherwise the story makes no sense, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he says that he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he actually means that literally. This first century audience knew all kinds of things about this road, which, by the way, was an actual road. They knew the road. They traveled the road all their lives. So they knew it was 17 miles long. They knew that as you traveled it from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is down by the Dead Sea, it descended 3,500 or so feet in elevation. They knew that people were regularly robbed and beaten and killed on this road, so much so, in fact, that the road was referred to as the Way of Blood. I mean, there wasn't a street sign that said that, but they understood, I'm taking the way of blood. They all knew what that meant. So here's what else they knew. They knew that it was reckless. They knew that it was foolish to travel the road alone. And Jesus has this man traveling the road alone. So a reckless, foolish Jewish man, that means something, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and not surprisingly... He fell among robbers who did what robbers do. So they stripped him and they beat him and then they departed, leaving him helpless, naked, bleeding, and half dead, but not entirely dead. And so then Jesus says, now by chance, a Jewish priest was what? Was also going down that road. And that, by the way, was also not unusual in that day. Why? Because it's estimated that 12 of the 24 orders of priests that did work up in the temple two times a year okay, lived down in the city of Jericho. So it was not uncommon to see them traversing this road, this way of blood. And when that Jewish priest saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, for that's what he was, he passed by on the other side. But the Lord is not done. He continues, he says, so likewise a Levite, another Jewish religious man, when he came to the place and saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, well, he did the same thing. He passed by on the other side. He said, why do you think he used religious people? I think maybe at least one of the reasons why he used religious people, as opposed to just like anyone, you know, was because there's an expectation of religious people. And what is the expectation of religious people? Because it's a reasonable one. It's that when we see people in need, in love, we will be merciful toward them. Now, why is that reasonable? Because we have this unique in all the universe understanding of just how merciful God has been to us in Christ. And it calls for a response. And beyond that, you know, we come to church and we go to community groups and we do our personal worship and we spend a lot of time in stories like this. And many of us are very, very merciful, and all of us are merciful in a variety of ways and a variety of times, but, you know, I mean, we're all deficient in this area in some sense, and so what we start to do subconsciously, not intentionally, is start looking for a way to give an excuse to these two guys, because we think maybe if we can find a way out for these guys, I can find a way out 
perhaps from the heavy demand of this, for me. So we start looking at the story and thinking to ourselves, well, you know, Tom, maybe these two religious guys thought that the helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother of theirs actually was dead. And I mean, since they serve in the temple and since there are laws that say, you know, you can't touch anything or anyone who is dead lest you become ceremonially unclean, therefore they thought, well, good grief, we can't help them. He's dead. If I become ceremonially unclean, I'm not going to be able to serve in the temple. And Jesus is like, no, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't work. You don't understand. Did you hear how I set up the story? Because I set it up in such a way as to remove that excuse. They too are coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're done with their duties in the temple. Oh, and beyond that, there was an affirmative duty on everyone, including them, to bury abandoned corpses. So if in fact they thought that this guy was dead then why didn't they bury him? And you say, well, then maybe they just made a judgment call. They looked at this guy and they said, listen, we don't want to affirm his stupidity. We don't want to enable this kind of foolishness. This guy was reckless. He was foolish. He should have known better. I wonder how many times he's done this. And maybe the best thing we can do for him and society, because everybody can learn from his example, small price to pay for everyone to learn this, is to just kind of let him stew in his own juices, man. Let him, you know, he knew the ride when he bought the ticket. Fine. Let's let him finish it. Moving on. Okay, that doesn't work either because... As you look at the story, you realize, oh wait, the priest and the Levites, yeah, they're, they're traveling the road alone too. The Lord is a master storyteller. Utterly brilliant. So then by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, who looked like him and walked like him and talked like him and voted like him, all of those things, and by anyone's definition was his neighbor. He thought only of himself and of the evident danger that he now found himself in because the robbers had been there. They had left the guy for dead, but he's still living, isn't he? So then how far away are these guys? And I'm alone. Oh, and it's immediately apparent that this guy's a mess. I mean, if you're not looking for a project, okay, then you don't want to get involved in this guy. This is going to be time. This is going to be money. This is going to be energy. This is going to be effort. This is going to be a major, major interruption in, in one schedule. And so then he skates by, does he not? He moves on. Passed by on the other side, so likewise a Levite. When he came to the place and saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, even though all of those categories fit him as well, by anyone's definition, neighbor, he ran the same analysis, and then he passed by on the other side as well. But then Jesus says something utterly shocking in that culture. He says to this Jewish crowd, but a Samaritan. Okay, the reason this matters is that the Samaritans were the inveterate enemies of the Jews. They hated each other. They literally performed acts of terrorism one upon each other, and this hatred had run for generations, for centuries. For centuries. Racism involved. Religious oppression and persecution involved. It would have been hard for Jesus to come up with a group of people that the Jews hated more than the Samaritans and with a group of people that the Samaritans hated more than the Jews, then, okay, these people despised each other. So he continues. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed down this same road from the city of Jerusalem down toward 
the city of Jericho, having just spent, we don't know how long, up in the city of Jerusalem, but I think we do know a little bit at least of what his experience must have been like. He would have been subjected to abuse after abuse after abuse after abuse after abuse by a group of people who sought to take his eye, his tooth, his dignity, his property, his freedom, and his money. Fresh off of that, he came to where his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish enemy was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, and notwithstanding the fact that he was obviously now in a position of great danger, notwithstanding the fact that it was immediately apparent to him as well that this was a project, and that it was going to be a major interruption, and it was going to be costly. And notwithstanding the fact that everybody would have cut this guy a pass, like no one would have expected, not even the guy dying, that he would stop to help him. He's a Samaritan. In fact, maybe quite the opposite. What, you kept one alive? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Notwithstanding all of that, he went to this man personally. He doesn't form a committee to deal with this man. He doesn't pull out his phone and call up to the police department up in Jerusalem and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm a Samaritan, so I really didn't have to do this, but what the heck, you know, somewhere between mile marker six and seven on the way of blood is one of your own. You better come quick. I feel now like I've done more than any other Samaritan I know would have done, feeling pretty good about that, and I'm going home. He went to him personally, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he got down in the dirt and somehow got his arms underneath this sweaty, bleeding, dying, naked Jewish enemy and picked this guy up and put him on his own animal, so now he has to walk, and then he called his wife and he said, look, you know, I, I know that you know, tonight is family night. I, I, I know that I plan to be home for tonight. I know that you guys have got the kids and the grandkids and they're all coming over tonight. I know this is a big deal and you've you know, killed a fattened calf or whatever. And so this is going to be a big deal. And, and here's the deal. I had planned to be there. I'd completely arranged my schedule. I'm actually on schedule to be there, but I'm not going to be there because I'm going to have to at least spend one more night out on the road in an inn because as I'm walking down the road, I see this guy, this naked, bleeding, Jewish, dying guy, and I, yeah, no, he's Jewish. No, 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 yeah, no, you heard me right. Yeah, no, I know what, he, I know what they did to your father. I, I know what they did to your brother. I know what they did to our son. I know what they did to me. I know what they did. But I can't pass him by. So he hangs up thinking, I better order flowers. And then he calls his secretary. And he says, listen, I know we've got a meeting at 8 o'clock in the morning. I had planned to be in the office. I've orchestrated my whole schedule to make that happen. It's a big deal for us. It took you moving heaven and earth to make that occur. So here's the thing. Um, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I need you to reschedule for maybe two days down the road just in case I want to build a little cushion in because the deal is I'm walking down the way of blood and I came across this naked, bleeding, dying Jewish guy and then I... No, I... Yeah, no, I just had this conversation with my wife. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you call her? She can explain this to you. Yeah. No, I know that he's my enemy. But I couldn't pass him by. 
Jesus says, then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day before he obligated himself any further, he got this man's name and address and social security number of date and birth. He ran a credit check on this guy. He had him sign a promissory note because now we're going to go deep into debt here with this dude. And that's not what he does. It says that he took out two denarii. So to give you some context, that's enough for room and board at one of these inns for two weeks. Now, it's not the Hilton, granted, but it's fairly substantial. And then he goes beyond that, and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, here we go, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he blindly obligates himself to an innkeeper that in all likelihood he doesn't know, and in that day, innkeepers were notoriously dishonest. And you say, well, then what happened? I don't know, which is not very satisfying, is it? You say, well, yeah, I mean, does the guy live? Does he die? Like, I mean, is this all worth it in the end? No idea. Well, what about the innkeeper? Does he defraud the Samaritan? I mean, he's, he's got a, I mean, he has his American Express, so don't know. Well, surely the Jewish guy sent the Samaritan's wife, flowers at the very least, right? I mean, and and the secretary too, and and, and he he paid him back for all. No idea. Why? Because Jesus ends the story right there. That's the end of the story, unless it finds life in our stories. And that's what it's intended to do. And we don't have to wonder if that's its intent. It's obvious. Just continue. Jesus looks now at the guy who started the story out by saying, you know, I mean, I love my neighbor, but I don't want that to include my enemies. I just want it to be the people that I already love anyway, because that's easy for me. But just in case, you know, I just need to know. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? He looks at that guy and he says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the man obviously said, well, I mean, that wasn't my question. So why don't you address that? He doesn't say that because Jesus has already addressed that. So who is our neighbor? Well, I don't think it's every hurting person on every road, but I do think it's every hurting person on my road for me and on your road for you. That seems pretty evident. And even if they are your enemy... So again, he says to this guy, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And, and the man can't use the word Samaritan even. He just says, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said to him, and by extension to everybody else who's interested in kingdom living, who cares more about souls than self, who wants to pattern their lives after the pattern of the Lord and that and pattern their loves after the pattern of the Lord. He says, you go and do likewise. Look, when it comes to living as the renewing agents of God, our obedience to the law of God matters. Not because we're trying to win His approval and all. That's all given to us in Jesus. It's not the point. It matters because His laws reflect Him. So then when we obey Him, who do we reflect? Him. And His love is such that it can take even our enemies and make them not only our friends, but our family as they too are attracted to the love of God and come to faith in the same Jesus. So it's not love your neighbors and hate your enemies. You don't display anybody but yourself and everyone else. When you do that, everybody does that. It's love even your enemies because they too are 
your neighbor. So it's a simple question today. It's obvious, isn't it? Who is the enemy that you need to love like a neighbor? So chew on that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that while we were yet sinners, that while we were off living for ourselves, whether or not we were conscious of the fact that we were living like Your enemies, we were because we were taking Your property, which is us, stealing it and using it for ourselves, building sandcastles, things that will fade. Notwithstanding all of that and the insult and the indignity of that, Lord, in love, You sought us out. That through Your Son who sustained indignity after indignity, for us You purchased us. By Your Spirit You came and You didn't just find us laying, dying on the side of the road. You dug us up out of the earth, spiritually speaking, and gave us life. You have made us Your own at Your own expense. And I pray that that love would somehow lay hold of us in a way that allows us, indeed that creates within us, the passion not for vengeance, but the passion to make You known by seizing absolutely every opportunity we can to live obediently before this world that we might be light, that we might be salt, that Your wisdom and Your love might be seen in and through us. We pray that You would do that for Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, Amen.